Welcome everyone to another episode of the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. I have a guest with me today, Brian Harneman, and let me tee up why I've asked Brian to join us. Of course, during COVID, we saw a diversity of the impact on businesses. If you were running a movie theater, you were really badly hit. If you were in the toilet paper industry, it was fantastic for you, or at least it was good for business. And in fact, we saw many, many businesses that were heroic and they're scaling up so that not just so they could make money, but so that they could serve and support the whole country, the whole world with the things that we needed during COVID. But if we think about industries that were hard hit, perhaps there are very few that were as hard hit as the travel industry. And so today we're going to focus in specifically on the travel industry. Of course, there was a time when travel practically ground to a halt. Obviously, people weren't traveling for business. States were not even allowing people from one state to come to the, another state without massive restrictions. Countries were closing their borders. I mean, you really couldn't imagine a worse nightmare scenario for an industry if someone said to you, all of a sudden, your job is to move people from place to place, and we've just made that essentially either illegal or massively inconvenient and dangerous. What a disaster. The good news is that now as we enter whatever you want to call it, a post-COVID era, the new normal, the travel industry, we're starting to see it bounce back. We see cruise ships start to take on passengers. Rental car prices through the roof because so many people want to rent cars. We see flights that are more full. My daughter went to Hawaii, came back, and during the three months she was there, on the way there, there was almost no one on her plane. And on the way back, it was nearly full, and she almost got a middle seat because it was so packed. Over the three-month period from February to April or May of this year, huge, huge difference. And of course, no doubt that aligns with COVID vaccination rates. So all of that by way of saying, I've invited Brian Harneman. Brian is a travel industry expert and veteran. He was in the early days, one of the people helping to formulate many of the products at Priceline, of course, one of the major travel players. He then went and spent quite a number of years as an executive at Kayak, another major travel company. He's worked in another number of other areas of the industry as well. Every job gives you a different perspective on an industry, but when you work at one of those OTAs, meaning online travel agency, like Priceline and Kayak, it gives you a particularly good vantage point across the whole industry because, of course, you're dealing with airlines, you're dealing with cruise, you're dealing with hotel, you're dealing with rental car, the four big areas of the travel industry. With all that, let me introduce Brian. Brian, I know that there's so much to your background. Why don't you share just a little bit more about what you've been doing in the travel industry and then what we want to get to is what you see in terms of trends in the travel industry, your forecast, and what travel companies should be thinking about, or companies that are impacted by travel, which could mean entertainment or other. So many businesses are impacted by what happens with travel. Let me turn it over to you, Brian. Tell us. Yeah, about uh, absolutely. The story is, is sort of transformation from the get-go in travel, right? So if you look at what Priceline was, we rethought and reimagined the way customers interacted with travel agents and basically sort of took an area of travel, these travel agents who held all the information, moved them out of the way and got those consumers directly into that information flow. I wanted to travel at a certain time on a certain airline. There really wasn't any need for me to ask you that question. I could go and use the internet to do that. So that was what Priceline did. It was, it was really sort of hardcore transferable form. We didn't know it was digital transformation, but it was. And then sort of as Priceline matured and became more of a less than name your own price, more of a traditional retailer, there was a need to sort of eat at that category and transform that category again. So Kayak and MetaSearch actually came up and said, what we built before, these OTAs, don't do everything that consumers want. Consumers are asking for more. They don't want to buy from an OTA. They want to buy directly from the carrier. And they can't do that at sites like Expedia, Travelocity, and Priceline. 
the meta search basically made it, I can pick what I want best, not what you're recommending for me, because you kind of stack the ranks in, in the OTA world. What makes me the most margin is what I want you to buy as a consumer. Meta search kind of didn't do that. We made it sort of more consumer first. And then we made you able to buy at the carrier or the supplier uh, directly so that if you had an issue in, in the middle of your travel, you didn't have to go through this intermediary, which like the travel agents sort of in the beginning stages, didn't add a ton of value. In fact, if you had a problem, travel disruption, and you had to call Priceline, that was a significant issue. Priceline didn't really help. They just said, well, you have to call Delta after waiting on hold for however long. So not a great consumer experience. So you sort of look at that, and it was really just a story of changing the way customers interacted with the data based on the research that we, you know, we did. We we found out what they wanted, and we actually built it for them. And you know, sort of in the years since, you know, sort of have looked at how consumers, business, and leisure have wanted to buy. And I, and I think one of the the topics I want to talk to you today is how digital transformation, specifically, you know, impacted by the uh, the pandemic state has changed the way one of the big disruptors, Airbnb, has done business. And specifically, they remade their business based on what they saw customers doing during the pandemic. And they were fast, uh, you know, as, as disruptors tend to be. But they actually, over the last 90 days, have completely reorchestrated uh, the way customers interact with their inventory because they saw customers traveling differently because of the pandemic. So I think that's that's probably where I'd want to start, Howard. Right. So what are some of the differences in travel behaviors by customers and, and needs by customers that have been caused by the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, one word, flexibility, right? I want to go now. Maybe I want to go in a couple of weeks, but I, I, I can't think about that because there's just too much stuff. Infection rates, are my kids going to be in school or out of school? Do I care about my kids being in school? Do I want to take them out? You know, so I think flexibility is a big a big trend. And then the length of travel is it's not short stays. These people are moving house for n number of months. They can work wherever they want, right? As people went sort of fully remote from work, being tethered to an address really became not an issue, right? The only address that was important is the fact that you had an IP address. Um, so people <laughs> were moving to other other states, other countries to sort of do work-life balance type stuff. So I think that was really interesting. And one of the things that Airbnb found that really cemented the fact that these people are traveling, but now travel is life is when they travel, they took their pets. So people that had dogs and cats were making sure that they could find pet friendly at a very high percentage, 50% or more people were taking their pets with them. So these were month long, month plus trips that they were finding. And, and that, you know, the, the rates of travel on these length of, of stays doubled year over year. So, you know, significant amount of, of demand, a significant amount of revenue because they were much longer stays to Airbnb. And as a result, they basically changed the way you could search, right? So they, they introduced an, a, a literally a hundred different ways Airbnb is better and they put a paper out. But, you know, from, from what they did on the interface piece was everything's flexible. So you don't have to tell me you want to go to Nashville. You just have to tell me. What are the types of places you want to go? I want to go near a national park. Oh, and by the way, people wanted to go away from big cities, right? So the amount of people that search for big cities, the top 10, shrunk to only 5% of the searches. So it really, they, they got much broader as far as where people were traveling. So they said, you know, look, I want to go to this type of, a, of an area. And then we'd show you what was, what was available. 
the the matching was a little bit more fungible as well, right? So I'm going to try to match you with places you may not have heard about. So you said Nashville, how about Pigeon Forge? What are the places that are near it that are like it that you may want to get that same flavor? And then again, this flexible date concept where you're not saying I'm going from Tuesday to Wednesday and I need to be back for work. I want to leave in April. Maybe I want to come back in June. So it was very much a an interface change. So uh, and based on that, they saw the amount of people that had some level of flexibility in their travel demand construction, you know, went through the roof. So they did the right thing by their consumers, which I think the speed that they recognized that customers were doing this and the, you know, the the changes that they made on the interface and their app were pretty impressive, really important from a business concept standpoint. Were they alone in being able to be rapid to respond to this? Or did you see that also from other travel providers, whether on the lodging side or air, car, et cetera? You know, I think that the the OTAs and the the meta searchers were sort of able to deal with flexibility sort of in their, you know, in their world because they have a pipeline to inventory, right? So, you know, if I'm an OTA and you want to go to Quad City, I can figure out a way to get you there because there's billions of network connections that already exist. Airbnb had not only a, a sort of a, you know, getting the demand problem, they actually had to find supply in these areas, right? So they don't have a hotel in Quad Cities. They have people that may or may not be hosts in Quad Cities. So the other side that they sort of thought about was, how do I get the supply into my system fast? And I made it much easier as uh, as Airbnb to sign up as a host. And I gave you more reasons to do that. And the minute you signed up for, you know, the to be a host within Airbnb, 50% of the people that got an offer within the first month of them doing that. The implementation cost or the opportunity cost of plugging in your uh, your inventory was really low. You were rewarded for it. In the world of travel distribution has always been a real problem. Think about tours and activities. I have to spend a lot of time describing my service. And if I want to be on a GDS or I want to be on an OTA, I have to figure out a way to get my inventory live. That doesn't mean everybody wants to go on a fishing tour in Rockland County, New York. Somebody might, but there's a real chance that I won't get any demand. That's not the uh, case in Airbnb. That's really interesting. And again, online travel in general has been better at than the supplier set. Air, car, hotel is demand generation and demand understanding, right? So when things happen, a pandemic, terrorist attacks, bad things happen, suppliers have to contract. Suppliers have to take marketing out of the, out of the, uh, the marketplace. They have to take some of their assets, you know, close up shop, take planes out of service, sell off their fleets. They don't see demand coming back nearly as fast as the OTAs. They're amazing demand generation and demand collection systems. So they're able to sort of react faster in much the same way that, that Airbnb did on this. It also shows the benefit of being a platform like Airbnb because I think, tell me if I've got this right, but what I see is that we're seeing leisure travel and even it's almost like we have this new category, or at least maybe it's not new, but it was a sm- so small we didn't think about it, which is almost this temporary relocation type of travel. You know, I'm just going to live and work from another location for a while. And then you've got traditional leisure, we're going on vacation for a week or two. And then you've got business travel. And I think what we're seeing is business travel is being very slow to come back. Yeah. You know, a lot of you know, salespeople are still talking to their customers on Zoom. Businesses don't want to be sort of liable for telling their employees they got to start traveling again. And 
But what that means, I would guess if you're a lodging supplier, like in your Airbnb example as well, if you've got a hotel, you know, as some hotels are more business hotels, right? Based on where they're located, they're not really a leisure destination. Right. They're catering to business travelers because they're near a business center versus obviously you have places like resorts and all that. So that's much more true than say air travel where, you know, if you get on a plane to, to Miami, well, you know, some people are going on business. Some people are going to get off the plane and go to a resort or whatever else. And so. I think Airbnb is in a good position because unlike most lodging suppliers that have built hotels in specific places, Airbnb, they bear no cost for unused inventory, of course. And then they can go try to market and get more inventory in the markets because if people are willing to pay a higher price, which is certainly one of the things we've seen in the pandemic is that the prices have skyrocketed for people who want to go to these sort of nice get out of town destinations. Airbnb has been marketing saying, Hey, listen, if you have a property here, you know, you can make a lot of money by by renting it on Airbnb. Maybe uh, you know you want to go live with your brother in law for a while. Right, <laughs> somebody will take your house or whatever. Yeah, Billy's got an extra room. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Well, I remember when the Super Bowl came to uh, New York. I had a neighbor, and we don't live that close to MetLife Stadium. You know, maybe thirty minutes from MetLife Stadium. But so many people wanted to come to the area to go to the Super Bowl that my neighbor rented his house. And he got, I think, something like $20,000 yeah. to rent his house for like four or five days around the Super Bowl. And he just, they just went and like stayed with their relatives. They're like, for that much money, you can have my house for those four or five <laughs> days. You know, I think he even picked them up at the airport. You know, he's like, I'll pick you up at the airport. I'll drive you to the house. My wife will cook your meals, $25,000. And they, they found a taker. Yeah. Look, it, it, there's a great spot, you know, that the internet has enabled, right? World's biggest bookstore. I don't, you know, I don't own any books. There's no cost of inventory for Airbnb. So, you know, they don't have to build a hotel. They don't have to buy a plane. They simply have to make the connection, right? And there's great value in that sort of marketplace, especially when you don't have to hold the inventory. I'm I'm always sort of shocked at how fast, you know, they were, you know, basically ran an end around you know, on the entire, uh, you know, lodging uh, industry. Yeah. It's, it's really pretty. Well, that kick stay is amazing. And I love the specificity. You know, they discovered people wanted different lengths of stays. They had different flexibilities in what they were searching for, and then they were able to quickly adapt. I'm sure that's partly a result of having flexible platforms, design thinking driven or agile think. You know, they they're doing the things that I talk about in my book, making sure you're keeping your finger on the pulse of the customer, identifying new needs or new points of pain, and then having a, a product development evolution process which allows you to quickly respond. Because I'm sure there's some companies that would still be having meetings about it by the time an Airbnb has updated their app and given you new features and capabilities. And that speed during a time of rapid change like we've just had is particularly valuable. Yeah, and they weren't, the, you know, remember, they weren't the first to market, right? There was a company called Couchsurfing that was out there where, you know, you want to go to Belize and, you know, sort of work your way across Central America. You could do that and sit on somebody's couch and, and not pay for it. So there was a marketplace there. There wasn't a transfer of uh, value for service. You just went there and it was a nice thing. And Craigslist also did this, but Airbnb were smart enough, one, to understand the commercial opportunity and then to figure out distribution. They actually leveraged Craigslist to sort of get their inventory out there. One of the biggest oh, things did they? <laughs> was here, click this button, we'll list you on Craigslist or you're on Craigslist, click here and we'll put you on Airbnb. So they sort of siphoned all the inventory out, you know, and then obviously because you were getting paid for it, you'd much rather be an Airbnb host and a couch surfer. Yeah. Well, and the history of that adaptability you can see in the name because what's the name? Airbnb. So what does the air stand for? The air stands for the original idea was kind of like the couch surfers that you were talking about. 
an air mattress, right? I mean, that's where it came from. It's like, hey, someone will put an air mattress in their apartment for you and you can pay to stay cheap. That was the original conception. But now, as you're describing it, what Airbnb is making a lot of money on is someone who's like, no, actually, I want a five bedroom home in the Hamptons for a month. And that's a heck of a lot different <laughs> from renting an air mattress in someone's spare bedroom. Yeah. But that's what the market needs. And is, I mean, that's where the opportunity was. So their name may still be Airbnb, but they're not providing an air mattress BNB. I mean, they may still have some of that, but I don't think it's a very large part of their business now. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the market has shifted, uh, you know, as they figured out, you know, that, oh, wait a minute, this is, this is where I need to be from a margin opportunity standpoint, right? Yeah. You know, sell a house rather than a closet. Well, so, so this has been an interesting case study in, in adaptability. Let me ask you this, though. This is a story really about the sort of core of the pandemic. Now, as we're transitioning out of the pandemic, what do you see changing for travel? Is Airbnb going to need to sort of put everything back the way it was? Because all of that was kind of specific to during the pandemic. My kids aren't in school. I'm going to work from anywhere. And what do you see as the trends? Obviously, we've already seen, as I said in the intro, an upsurge in travel demand. But yeah. beyond that, what do you see for travel and what should travel providers uh, or others connected to the travel industry be thinking about? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I think Airbnb put them on a shelf, right? They sort of have their own market. They've figured out some things that may not, you know, pertain to the rest of travel. If remote work, you know, or the return of the office, you know, sort of is delayed or never happens, and that may be the case, uh, I think the idea that I can work from wherever, I can educate my kids from wherever, especially if it's, you know, online learning platforms are now more accepted, that becomes sort of travel equals life, right? So that's, you know, Airbnb's bread and butter, and they'll, they'll sort of sit there. You know, the rest of the travel world really has to start thinking about how do I do my job more efficiently with less people? I took a lot of service out of the market, right? I sold off rental cars. I took planes out of service. And I literally dropped them into the desert, right? There's a bunch of planes like in the middle of Arizona that they're, you know, they, they can keep in hot storage instead of cold storage and they're not in service. And I furloughed a lot of my employees. So I have less people to do the same jobs for now, the same amount of demand pre-pandemic, right? So in March of last year, we were 5% uh, year over year. So we had nobody flying, right? The TSA looks for people going through the turnstiles. Now we're at 95%. So the demand is back. People are flying again. And this but, is the 95% two year over year. Is that right? Correct. 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 This is the 19 compared to the 20. Pre-pandemic. Well, another we're, way, we're fully back. Almost 20x the demand they had this time last year. <laughs> It's, and with probably, you know, not fully staffed yet, people left. And by the way, some of these people were at lower rates of pay. Maybe it doesn't make sense for them to come back at, you know, the money they're getting paid. They'll take the unemployment as they're able. You have less people doing the same amount of, uh, of work. So you Plus really if have, you to have to bring in different people. Now they're not trained up the way the people were that you furloughed because maybe those people got another job and all that. Right. So you got a real train problem here, right? You've got, you've got all these people coming through and you've got to sort of scale up to that demand. How can I digitally transform people and processes to get them to work in the way that I need to, right? So I don't want to have people going up to a counter. I don't want to have people calling to change my ticket or, or reserve a rental car. I want to make that all touchless, all sort of as immediate as possible. So I think that's one of the big things that all of the, the suppliers need to think about. Airlines have a significant problem, right? They're understaffed. They're sort of at peak demand now. You have people that expect the same level of service from an industry that kind of hasn't been people first. You know, the joke in the airline industry is always, 
God, I'd love to be UPS. They don't have to move any people. They just move packages. <laughs> I see. Don't talk back. So, so now I have people that have high expectations and my service level is going to be lower. What do airlines have to do? And, you know, there's a new airline that launched called Breeze. It's from the guys who started JetBlue. They're about people first, being friendly. Their fares are what's the friendly fare, right? So it's really about sort of this idea of catering to the user. How about airlines do this? Think about this as a, as a concept. Why do I ever have a fare that I can't cancel? It's bad for customers. They get really upset. Give them future value. Give them something, but don't let it, don't sell an uncancelable fare or non-changeable fare. That's what happened pre-pandemic. Now you've basically got peak levels of demand. You've got less people. Figure out a way to make that. I can't fly today, Howard. You want my ticket? Great. Take it. Make it changeable. No problem. No fees to me. And by the way, you're still getting the same level of revenue for the for, for the airline carrier. So. I think one of the things that you want to look at from a change perspective is if units of, of supply are fungible, movable, easy to change, make it so. Don't penalize the customers who actually now finally want to use your product again. They've been dying to travel. Now they actually are able to do it. Don't make it hard for them now. Make it as easy as possible. Make it as friendly as possible. So I think people and processes based on sort of removing old barriers, make stuff that is mundane, you know, sort of repetitive tasks, automate that as best you can. Well, it always seems particularly in air that you have an industry of followers. So it's sort of like once one airline changes a policy, it's like dominoes, right? So if we see, and we saw, of course, a lot of lifting of restrictions during COVID. So it'll be interesting to see how much of that goes back. I'm sure the airlines, I mean, on the one hand, they probably like the policies because they benefit them from a revenue perspective. But of course, in the spirit of what I'm always talking about, I'm talking about my book, Winning the love of your customers. I, I love what you're saying as someone who flies a lot. The airlines want to say, great, you want that kind of flexibility? Buy the full price fare. That's right. you know, we've given you a discounted fare in exchange for less flexibility. Let me ask you this, though. In the rental car industry, we've, of course, seen, and a lot of people talk about how the prices have skyrocketed. The, the capacity is not fully back. I'm sure it'll get there. The demand is largely heavily back. And so the consequences, supply and demand, the prices have gone up a lot. What do you think about that whole yield issue? And I've seen the same to some degree in air. I was pricing uh, tickets the other day and I noticed, wow, they look maybe not as off the charts as some of the car rental costs, but pretty high. And I haven't seen the same at lo in lodging, but I mean, what approaches to pricing do you think that uh, travel suppliers should be taking right now? Should it be, you got really screwed by the pandemic for a year and a half. Yeah. So now make hay while the sun shines and get as much money as you can. Is that really the right mindset or... Might that have a negative long-term impact on NPS? Might someone say, oh, geez, you know, they, they really kind of took advantage of me when I really wanted to get that return to the travel experience. I don't know. What, what do you think would be the right approach to that? Yeah, look, you know, we know that, you know, rental car prices are up 100% in some markets year over year, right? So it's, it's, it's exactly what you described, right? There's people that want to travel and, or they want to drive and there's, there's just no fleet to sort of help them you know, sort of get where they need to go. And they're making other choices. They're taking a train, they're taking a bus, or they're using Uber, which by the way, has the same issue. People are driving with Uber because they can get unemployment if they're able. And so as a result, they're jacking up prices. There's a lot of, you know, sort of consumer discontent, you know, sort of with regard to, to ground transport. You know, one of the ways that, that I think you can sort of, you know, serve both masters here, I need revenue as a car rental company. And, you know, I sort of need to sort of hit targets based on quarterly goals, 
but I also want to delight customers is figure out a way to give forward credit. If, if rental car customers know that many of the people that are using their product aren't hardcore travelers, right? So, you know, when I fly, I use a rental, rental car in a couple cities. Austin is one just because I don't like the rideshare choices there. But generally, I'll use rideshare in other places. Figure out a way to make me use your product more. So buy now. Look, we know it, it's expensive, but that's a responsible price. That's what the market will bear. That's what I have to charge. I'll give you $50, $25 of credit within the next six, nine, 12 months if you come back. And in that way, I can sort of, you know, get you an extra trip, which, you know, I get incrementality as a business. I get some creative revenue and I have the ability to sort of delight you as a customer. So you have to pick the right customers to do that too. You know, rental cars of all of the travel companies, they have such a delicate rate structure and they segment their customers sort of, you know, to the umpteenth degree. They should be able to target. I think that would be something that works for everybody rather than hammering people on rate and, you know, basically saying, I hope you come back. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And actually, as I hear you saying it, if I think about the different categories of travel, some are more emotional than others. And I would say car rental is probably the least emotional. If you ask people, you know, do you love a car rental company? I think it'd be a lot harder to find that. If you ask people if they love an airline, I think you'll find more people that say that. Yeah. And if you ask people if they love a hotel chain, probably even more, not everybody, but some people would say, oh, I love Grand Hyatt's because there's just a higher level of hospitality in lodging. And then if you ask people if they love a cruise line, I think there's a lot of people that would say, oh, I love Princess Cruises or I love, you know, it's an unfair comparison because, of course, it's a lot easier to delight a customer when you're whisking them off to a Caribbean location versus if you're giving them a Toyota Celica you know, and telling them, good luck wherever you're going. Yeah, here's uh, but, but I think the more your category is reliant on emotional connection rather than rational, the more important it is to not be perceived by the customer as being unreasonable. And, you know, customers are used to, hey, you pay more for a cruise or an airfare at Christmas time than you do during the shoulder season. So the idea of some variability in rates is understandable to, I think, most customers within a certain parameter. And beyond that, I don't know, I think customers are more understanding of you're sold out because that's the problem, right? If you don't raise the prices to a certain point, then the demand exceeds supply. And then what happens? You simply have no more supply. But I think in a way, customers might understand that more than, oh, sure, I have a ticket from New York to Denver. It's $2,700 in coach. And you're like, what are you trying to do to me? One is my fault, right? I didn't act fast enough. So that's on me. Now you're just holding me up. Like that. that's that's a whole different thing. You, You raise an interesting point with regard to sort of love or maybe understanding of brands, right? So Airbnb is is sort of its own category. If I have a bad host experience, I'm probably mad at the host. I'm probably not going to hate or love Airbnb any more or less, right? So that's that's mm-hmm. interesting. Again, they sort of kind of escape this issue. But bad so ex- do OTAs, I think. Maybe. It depends on if you call them, right? And they basically, you know, put you through the ringer and then say, oh, you know, now you got to talk to uh, to Delta. That That's that's a bad experience. Right, right. You know, the, the problem that you see here is you, know, you have hotels and hotels have so many brands, right? So if you look at Marriott, they have 40 plus brands. And, you know, I, I consider myself, except for the last two years, somebody who travels a lot and has experiences at multiple brands. I couldn't tell you half of what the brands stand for. Great example, Sheridan. Sheridan is, an, is a venerable travel brand. If you ask, you know, 100 people on the street, what is Sheridan? Is it a two? 
three, four star hotel, they don't know anymore. So I think the brands from a brand love perspective and brand understanding, because they become part of this canopy structure, have a real issue. What do you stand for? And what do I react to as a customer? Which is why, you know, sort of these smaller, like sort of experiential brands and hostels, frankly, are starting to sort of apply, you know, and, and drag more of the younger customers in because they actually stand for something. They're not corporate. They're not sort of whitewashed under this, you know, multiple brand strategy. So there's a real interesting problem, you know, that the hotels have done to themselves. And, and the reason they did it has nothing to do with customer. It has all to do with I'm getting disintermediated by the brand platform, the, uh, the demand generation platforms out there. Wouldn't it be easier for me to say no to Expedia if I'm 48% of their potential unit sales as a conglomerate? Marriott's going to buy their leading competitor and I'm going to make it bigger of a problem. Yeah. So Great. Well, I, I'm looking at the clock and I'm realizing we could talk for hours about this, but we've pretty much expired our time. But I want to just summarize. You said a few things that really stuck with me. Uh, many things that were very interesting, but a few I just want to put in a summary. First of all, you talked about flexibility and the Airbnb case study, I think is really interesting in terms of an example of company that was really set up well to continuously understand their market and be ready to change the product quickly. And I think that's something that is a good case study for any company to be ready for a changing market. Then uh, you talked about something that I haven't really thought about before, which is the potential for digital transformation during a labor shortage, because that's really what a lot of these companies that are coming back are facing. And you could say, well, we need to get back to the same ratio of employees to customers that we had before. You could say, wait a minute, you know, we've gotten rid of all these people. They've left. We've had to furlough them, whatever else. Here's an opportunity to rethink how we could use digital to be more cost effective. And in any case, we can't get the people right now anyway. So even if we didn't want to do it that way, it gives you an alternative way of potentially creating a great customer experience without quite as many bodies and seats. Also, and then the last thing that you talked about was this. You know, essentially, it's the welcome back, right? You know, there were so many brands that when times were bad, they were sending these messages, we're here for you, we're here for you. Some of that just seemed like, like an echo chamber, like, great, thanks. You know, I don't need you right now, Delta Airlines. So the fact that you're here for me, okay, thanks. But like, it, it just seemed like one of these things to say, like when we say thoughts and prayers after a tragedy. But now the question is, how are brands going to say welcome back? And particularly if they have the challenge that they can't provide the level of service they want to because they have a labor shortage and they have a, a capacity limitations, how do they, how do they say welcome back? Because I, I think, and, and I'm building a little bit on what you said, but this idea of how you welcome people back could have a big long-term impact on people. It's a, it's an emotional moment. It's, it's not just business as usual. Like, eh, I take two cruises a year. This is the cruise where you return or this is the flight. Yeah that you're returning after a year and a half of not going anywhere, it's increased emotional importance. So a lot of thought needs to go into how we do that in a way that hopefully creates some, some points, some love that will have potentially long-term juice for that brand. Anyway, thank you. This has been a great conversation. And I wanna say, we forgot to say in our introduction, but Brian's a colleague of mine. He works at the same company I do from the Digital Transformation Agency. We do a lot of work with travel companies and Brian is working with our travel clients as well as other clients, uh, bringing his expertise. Reach out to Brian on LinkedIn or myself if you want to talk about anything like that. But if you're looking for help in the area of, well, obviously many areas, but Brian's depth of knowledge in the travel industry is very helpful. And if that is something you are looking for as well, for help from a consulting perspective, that is what we do. Thanks to my guest, Brian Harneman. Thank you so much for being here. And with that, thank you again for watching and listening. Have a fantastic week and keep transforming.